0: So, today we're going to continue with the critique of judgment. And in particular, we're going to look at Kant's solution or explanation of the puzzle or the problematic feature of judgments of taste that was identified last week in the analytic of the beautiful. So, remember, the strategy is that in the analytic, certain features that judgments of taste have are identified. And, at least supposedly, in the deduction, an explanation of how it's possible for them to have those apparently problematic features is given. As I say, uh, it's just supposedly in this because material relevant to both of these projects is scattered throughout the critique in both sections uh, entitled The Analytic and The Deduction. So, the big problem or problematic feature of judgments of taste is what Kant describes as their subjective universality, or as he sometimes puts it, their subjective universal validity. Uh, They're subjective, in his sense, in that they're not based on concepts, on the perception of a property in the object, but rather they're based on some fact about the judge some feature of the judge. And in the case of judgments of taste, it's based on pleasure. And the point very much emphasized last week was that it's based only on pleasure. The pleasure itself is not based on concepts. The judgment is not based on concepts. Judgment is based only on the pleasure. And the pleasure is a pleasure connected with an intuition of the object which, remember, in his vocabulary is a sense perception of the object, which is a representation of a particular rather than a general representation, which is what a concept would be. So judgments of taste are subjective in this sense, and they also have this feature of universality. And what that amounts to is that when you make a judgment of taste, you believe that everyone else ought to agree with you. Universal in the sense of everyone ought to agree. And as we discussed at the end last time, He he appears to give at least two reasons why judgments of taste have this feature. The first is that they're based on disinterested pleasure. And so it seems to you as if your pleasure in it doesn't result from some desire for the existence or non-existence of the object that might be unique to you. And second is this point that we argue over whether things are beautiful. So as he puts it, we blame others who we judge to have bad taste. That implies that we think they ought to agree. That everybody ought to agree. Now, as Kant clarifies in this first quotation on the handout, as he says, the assertion is not that everyone will fall in with our judgment but rather that everyone ought to agree with it. Here I put forward my judgment of taste as an example of the judgment of common sense and attribute to it on that account exemplary validity. So that's important. It's not a prediction that everybody who looks at the object will agree with you. It's a claim that everybody ought to. And in fact, we persist in claiming this, Kant notes, even when we see that other people don't agree. That's, the whole, that's what makes argument possible. We think everybody ought to agree even though we see they don't. And he thinks this is an interesting contrast with judgments of the agreeable in which even when we see everybody agrees that something's agreeable, uh, we don't require that everybody ought to agree. So that he puts it in that somewhat uh, paradoxical-seeming way to, bring, to highlight this feature that judgments of taste have. One point we didn't mention last week is that Kant thinks this explains, this feature of universality, explains why we talk as though beauty is a property of objects, even though it's not. So the word beautiful is an adjective, which, at least normally, is grammatically an adjective, which at least normally is used to attribute properties to objects. In various ways, we speak as if beauty is a property of the object. And he thinks the reason for this is this feature of thinking everybody ought to agree. Because, and this is going to be very important as we go along, when you judge that something has a property, you also think everybody ought to agree. So if you're looking at an object and you judge that it is square you also think everybody ought to agree. Everybody who sees the object, that is, ought to agree that the object is square. So cognitive judgments, and not just judgments of taste, or what he sometimes calls logical judgments, also have this feature of expecting or believing everybody ought to agree. And that, he thinks, is that analogy in virtue of which we talk about beauty as if it's a property of objects. That what... That's what makes that way of speaking appropriate, because there's that similarity between judgments of taste and judgments attributing a property to the object. Now, as an interesting aside here, uh, Kant uses this also to defend a kind of formalism about beauty. So he thinks it follows from this that colors and tones can't be beautiful. Uh, They can only be agreeable and he has a kind of a funny reason for this, he thinks it's because we can't be sure that everybody sees the same colors as we do, that colors look the same way to everybody. So this is a very venerable philosophical question. How do I know that when I see red, I have the same experience as you do when you see red? Kant not we can't be sure that we do have that same experience. And so if the redness gives me pleasure, I can't expect you to agree, because I can't be sure that you're having the same experience of redness. So it's a funny worry to kind of insist on, as a reason why you're not justified in judging colors to be beautiful. You can find them agreeable, that's no problem, because you're not claiming with judgments of the agreeable that everyone ought to agree. And he also says that the purity of a color can be beautiful. That's okay, because that's a formal feature of the color. It's not the quality of redness, but the undifferentiated nature of the redness, or the purity of the redness. And he thinks all colors, insofar as they are pure, are beautiful. But it's not in virtue of the qualitative character of the color, but rather in virtue of the purity. Okay, so universality, very important, and very puzzling. Because it seems difficult to explain how you could be justified going merely on your own pleasure in believing that everybody ought to agree. So, for example, you can't be justified by having perceived beauty in the object. It's not like the judgment that a thing is square... It's not on that basis that you are justified in believing everybody ought to agree, because beauty is not a property in the object. And you can't be justified in believing everybody ought to agree by having a proof that the thing is beautiful. Obviously, that would would do. That would justify you in believing everybody ought to agree. But, as we saw last week, judgments of taste, not based on concepts... And it follows from that, that you can't get a proof showing that something's beautiful. So that way of justifying the expectation of agreement is not available. And moreover, you don't make this claim based on evidence that the object can please everyone. Empirical evidence, I should say. That's an important qualification. It's not as a result of checking, doing a survey, to see if the object pleases everyone. (coughs) It's not on that basis that you make this claim that everyone ought to agree. And once again, we mentioned this last week, that one reason why that's so is that that would also base your judgment on concepts concepts of being liked by others. That's one reason. So Kant, very typical of his approach to a lot of problems, points out a number of features that seem to suggest that some phenomenon or some kind of judgment or some form of knowledge is not possible. And then he goes on to try and explain how, in fact, it is possible, despite these apparent obstacles to its possibility. And I think you can understand what he goes on to do as being based on an attempt to show that we are justified, though not empirically, in believing that everyone can take pleasure in an object that we judge to be beautiful. So remember I said that the problematic feature was that we believe everybody ought to agree with our judgment. Well, connected with that is the belief that everybody can take pleasure in the object. It's a well-known principle of Kant's, mainly in his moral philosophy, that if you ought to do something, then you're capable of doing it. So this is the principle sometimes summarized as ought implies can. So if you ought to agree with our judgment of taste, then we (coughs) are committed to the claim that you're capable of of agreeing with our judgment of taste. And if you are capable of agreeing with the judgment of taste, since judgments of taste are based on pleasure, we're also committed to the view that you are capable of taking pleasure in the object that we're taking pleasure in. And what he goes on to argue, in effect, or what he goes on to explain, is how it's possible to be justified in believing that everybody else is capable of taking pleasure in the object that we are taking pleasure in. But once again, as I mentioned, if we're justified in believing everybody's capable of taking pleasure in the object, That can't be based on experience. We have to be, to use a term I mentioned last week, a priori justified in believing that everyone is capable of taking pleasure in the object that pleases us. A priori justified, remember it just means justified but not based on experience. And I think the reason for this is to go back again to something I mentioned last week that this is a claim about what is always the case. So, again, everyone can take pleasure in the object without exception. The claim is not just, so far as we've seen, everyone can take pleasure in the object. It's a claim... Everyone without exception can. And one of the marks of a priori judgments, or a priori knowledge, is that they are in this sense about what is always the case, without exception. They have to be a priori, justified if they're justified at all, because experience only tells you, can't tell you what is the case without exception, because it is limited. So if we're justified at all in believing that everybody without exception can take pleasure in the object, we've got to be a priori justified in believing that. And since he likes to assimilate uh, various different concepts, he also thinks you can argue this on the grounds that there's an element of necessity to our judgment. The necessity comes in in the claim that everyone ought to agree. This is, again, typical of Kant of using the very same word as applies to mathematical necessity, so the claim that 2 plus 2 must, must equal 4, to the notion of an obligation or a duty. He does this in his Ethics as well, where he compares moral laws to laws of nature. Typical of him, but he thinks, but the key point here for this is that because necessity is involved in the sense of we ought to agree, experience can't justify that belief that everybody ought to agree. Because experience only tells us about what is the case, not about what must be the case. But here the must, as I say, is a moral must. Well, not in the case of agreement, uh, but it's certainly not a natural or mathematical must. Okay. So I've summarized this at the bottom there by saying in point D... We can be justified in believing everyone ought to agree with our judgment of taste if and only if we can be a priori justified in believing everyone can take pleasure in the object. So the question is going to be, how can we be a priori justified in believing everyone can take pleasure in the object? And this is in quotation number three, the way Kant puts it. It's from section 36 of the Critique of Judgment. How is a judgment possible, which, going merely upon the individual's own feeling of pleasure in an object, independent of the concept of it, judges this as a pleasure attached to the representation of the same object in every other individual, and does so a priori, i.e., without being allowed to wait and see if other people will be of the same mind? This is the principal question that the critique of judgment is going to try and answer, Okay, So his answer is incredibly obscure, and a lot of people have a great deal of difficulty making sense of what he says. Uh, I'm going to present one reading. I don't know if it's right. Uh, And it's worth taking a look at a bit of the secondary literature on this to get a sense of, uh, well, A, the difficulty that even the very best Kant scholars have in figuring out what he means but B, also the diversity of uh, interpretations offered. Major work on Kant's theory of taste is by Paul Geyer, called Kant and the Claims of Taste. Another major work is by Henry Allison called Kant's Theory of Taste. Geyer has also written an interesting paper on this topic, which surveys a lot of the literature on it, called Harmony of the Faculties Revisited. And that's in a book of his essays called Values of Beauty. But basically, Kant's answer is that we can be a priori justified in thinking that everyone else can agree with us Or rather, a priori justified in thinking everyone else can take pleasure in the object. If and only if we can be justified in believing that our own pleasure arises from what he calls the harmonious free play of imagination and understanding. That's the bottom line. That's the answer. That's the explanation of how it's possible to be a priori justified, based only on your own pleasure, in believing that everybody else can take pleasure in the object. Only if you can be justified in thinking that your own pleasure comes from the harmony of the faculties, the harmonious free play of imagination and understanding. So how does he get there? Well, one step seems to be that we can only have this a priori justified belief that everybody else can take pleasure in the object if we can be justified in believing that our own pleasure arises from some mental state, mental condition, mental activity, which we can know a priori that everyone else can be in when they perceive what we perceive. It's a claim about the source of our pleasure. We can be justified in believing that our pleasure arises from some source, some mental condition, which we can also know a priori. Everybody else can be in when they're perceiving the object. Then we can be justified in thinking they will get pleasure too. Our pleasure comes from that source. They all share that source, that mental condition. Therefore, we can be justified in thinking that they can take pleasure as well. Seems clear enough, that's one step along the way. And this also recalls some remarks he made about disinterestedness uh, last week regarding uh, our belief that the source of our pleasure can't be unique to us. Next step is the claim uh, that the only mental condition, or kind of mental condition, which we can know a priori that everyone else can be in when they perceive the thing we perceive, are mental conditions that enable us to apply concepts to what we perceive. So to the kinds of mental states, activities, conditions that enable us to make cognitive judgments. Those are the only ones we can know a priori everyone else can be in when they perceive what we perceive. That also seems to be a claim along the way. And so, again, like I mentioned before, when we do apply a concept to what we perceive, we believe everybody else ought to agree with our judgment. But moreover, uh, provided our judgment is justified at least, We're also a priori justified in believing everyone else can be in the same mental condition that enabled us to apply that concept to what we perceive. So there's a parallel here in two respects between cognitive judgments and what's true of judgments of taste. We expect everybody to agree. We think everybody ought to agree with our judgment when it's a cognitive judgment. And we can also be a priori justified in believing that everybody can be in the same mental condition that enabled us to apply the concept to what we perceive. This is in the case of cognitive judgments. The additional step is that these are the only mental conditions that we can be a priori justified in knowing everybody else can be in when they perceive the things that we perceive. And once you have that step, it follows that it's got to be the case that our pleasure comes in beauty comes from some mental state, activity, condition that enables us to apply concepts to what we perceive, as in a cognitive judgment. I mean, that is a cognitive judgment, to apply concepts to what you perceive. Now, Kant has a theory, also very obscure in its own right, about what these mental conditions are, which he presents in The Critique of Pure Reason, the first of his three critiques. And I'm just going to go through this a bit. So, in order for us to apply a concept to what we perceive... Uh, there are two faculties that, are, for our purposes, that are very important. First is what he calls the imagination. He seems to mean something rather similar to what we mean by imagination, but also rather different. So he defines the imagination as the faculty of representing an in intuition, that which is not itself present. And remembering what he means by intuition is not so different from what we might mean. But it's also very important for Kant that the imagination has uh, an absolutely fundamental, essential role in sense experience. In particular, in order for us to apply concepts to what we perceive in our sense experience... The imagination, as he puts it, has to combine or synthesize intuitions. That's a key point. Imagination combines different perceptual representations in order, and that one of the things that is one of the things that makes it possible to apply concepts to what we perceive. So take a look at quotation four on the handout. This is from the Critique of Pure Reason, where he's describing an activity that he calls the synthesis of reproduction in imagination. And he thinks this is necessary in order for us to be able to apply concepts to what we perceive. So he says, Experience as such necessarily presupposes the reproducibility of appearances. When I seek to draw a line in thought or to think of the time from one noon to another, or even to represent to myself some particular number, obviously the various manifold representations that are involved must be apprehended by me in thought one after the other. But if I were always to drop out of thought the preceding representations, the first parts of the line, the antecedent parts of the time period, or the units in the order represented, and did not reproduce them while advancing to those that follow, a complete representation would never be obtained. Now that's actually reasonably clear, I think, what he's talking about. If in your mind you're drawing a line, you can't forget about or delete the first parts of the line as you're going on to the next parts. You've got to keep them there, or as in his vocabulary, reproduce them a moment later when you're drawing the later parts of the line. Otherwise, you won't be able to represent the whole line. Imagination has to keep, in this picture of things, reproducing the earlier parts of the line that you drew in order to complete it, in order to represent a whole line. In this sense, this is one of the ways, an example of one of the ways, in which imagination has to combine representations. So the representations of the earlier parts of the line that you drew with representations of the later parts of the line Imagination combines these in part by reproducing the earlier ones. And that's how you get a representation in your mind of one line. Now this is an example of drawing something in your head. Uh, But he thinks this also happens in sense perception. You have to remember what you're looking at. uh, And that it's the same thing as what you saw before across time as well okay so that's part of what goes on in our experience in order for us to be able to apply concepts to what we perceive now this is by no means the suggestion is by no means that this is a conscious thing we're doing all the time this is something the mind just naturally does when it receives sensory input it combines these things. The imagination combines the different bits of the input, as he puts it, the manifold of intuition that we're getting. It combines certain parts in certain ways. This is one example. Next thing that happens in ordinary judgments, according to the first edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, is what he calls the synthesis of recognition in a concept. So he goes on to say, If we were not conscious that what we think is the same as what we thought a moment before, all reproduction in the series of representations would be useless. So that synthesis of reproduction mentioned earlier. For it would in its present state be a new representation, which would not in any way belong to the act whereby it was to be gradually generated. The manifold of the representation would never, therefore, form a whole. And he gives an example. If, in counting, I forget that the units which now hover before me have been added to one another in succession, I should never know that a total is being produced through this successive addition of unit to unit, and so would remain ignorant of the number. For the concept of the number is nothing but the consciousness of this unity of synthesis. So the thought is, it's fine for the imagination to combine together various representations... But you've got to know what unites them before, in order to apply a concept to what you're looking at. Indeed, that's what it is to apply a concept to what you're looking at, is to group together, the, say, the five units as five. What unites them is that they are a group of five, the thought seems to be. And it's the consciousness of what unites them that uh, is what the understanding enables you to do by supplying you with a concept that represents what unites them. That's the thought in the first critique. That's what goes on normally in order to be able to apply a concept to what you're perceiving. Imagination combines different representations. The understanding supplies a concept that represents the unity that those combined representations possess. Now, complexity here, one of many, is that the imagination and the understanding are working very closely together. So the imagination combines certain representations with these rather than those, because the imagination is guided by a concept of the understanding. So it's not as though, although reading out these examples like that might suggest it, the combination happens first and then you just notice, oh, that's what it has in common. The imagination is guided by concepts in order to make the combinations that it makes. So, this is just an analysis of what's going on, not a sort of temporal series of stages. Okay. This needs to happen in order for experience to be possible, Kant says. Certainly needs to happen in order for us to be able to apply a concept to what we perceive. So it's going to be some mental condition like that that our pleasure comes from, in beauty. But of course, and this is point D under number two, it can't actually be a matter of applying a concept to what we perceive. Because our pleasure is not based on concepts. Very important for him. So it's got to be something like I just described, but delete the bit where you apply the concept to it. The implication seems to be that it's just the imagination combining particulars, grouping stuff together, but without then applying a concept that represents what those things grouped together have in common. Now that, as I say, is a bit obscure. But, Paul Geyer, who I mentioned... Thinks he's found a passage where Kant actually gives an example of this happening. Kant hardly ever gives examples to illustrate any of the things he says. So if this is right, that would be very helpful. And this is the fifth passage on your handout, and it's from section 53 of the Critique of Judgment. So remember, I said the implication seems to be that we get pleasure from the imagination combining perceptual representations together. Well, in this passage, Kant is talking about music and our experience of melody and of harmony. And he says, Although this mathematical form, so the mathematical, mathematically describable relationships between tones arranged in harmonies and melodies, is not represented by means of determinate concepts, as we listen to music, to it alone belongs the delight which the mere reflection upon such a number of concomitant or consecutive sensations couples with this their play, as the universally valid condition of its beauty. And it is with reference to it alone that taste can lay claim to a right to anticipate the judgment of every human being. But mathematics certainly plays not the slightest part in the charm and movement of the mind produced by music. Rather is it only the indispensable condition of that proportion of the combining as well as changing impressions which makes it possible to grasp them all in one, and to let them conspire towards the production of a continuous movement and quickening of the mind by affections that are in unison with it. The basic thought there seems to be that in just the way that when you're listening to a melody you group certain, uh, c- certain notes together, That is the sort of thing that's happening whenever we perceive beauty, the thought seems to be. It's that kind of grouping, but without a concept representing what unites them, from which our pleasure in beauty arises. The the fact that there's no concept representing what these combined representations have in common is what Kant's trying to show by talking about mathematics here. So, these things that you group together, the tones that you group together when you're listening to a melody, uh, they do stand in certain relations to one another that can be described. But his point here is that you're not representing them with a concept as standing in those relations as you're listening to the music. Or if you are, at least, that's not where the pleasure comes from. Your imagination is grouping them together independently of the concepts that could be applied to it to represent the unity they have. That seems to be supported by his general model of what goes on when you perceive stuff, is that you group things together, uh, intuitions together with the imagination, and when you perceive something as beautiful, you do that too, but you don't apply a concept. Or at the very least, you don't get pleasure from having applied a concept to the intuitions you group together. As I say, whether this is what Kant means is kind of anyone's guess, but this seems to be as reasonable a reconstruction as many others. This, it seems to be, is what the harmonious free play of imagination and understanding amounts to. It's play, in the first place, because you're not using imagination and understanding to acquire knowledge, as you would uh, if you had applied a concept. So they're cognitive faculties, faculties whose function is to get you knowledge, but you're not using them for that purpose you're using them in a kind of play. That's why he describes it as play. Seems clear enough. It's free play, because the the imagination is combining various representations, but is not guided by concepts in so doing. So it's free of concepts. It's combining these together, not because some concept of an object is guiding it to combine them in the way it does, but it's doing so independently of that. Furthermore, why is it a harmony between imagination and understanding? Well, Geyer's take on this is that it's a harmony because the imagination here satisfies the understanding's usual demand for some combined representations, even though the understanding doesn't apply a concept. And it's in that sense that they're in harmony. So. That's what the harmonious free play of imagination and understanding is. And we can know that this is a state of mind that anybody can be in when faced with an object, which we can, the thought seems to be, because this is a state of mind that is required in order to apply concepts to the thing. These are acts of the mind that are required in order to apply a concept to the thing. or at least they're of the same kind as those acts, uh, then we can be confident that uh, everybody else can take pleasure in the object. We're justified in thinking our pleasure comes from harmonious free play. A priori justified in thinking everybody else can be in a state of harmonious free play when they perceive the object. Therefore, a priori justified in believing that everybody else can take pleasure from the object that's how justified judgments of taste are possible or rather how it's possible to to be justified in believing everybody ought to agree or maybe not because it's so obscure but that's one possible way of going Um, now a number of points here that might arise Often in Kant, at least in my experience of reading Kant, it's not always clear whether when he is trying to explain how something's possible, if his goal is to establish that it is possible, or if he's assuming it's possible and just explaining how. So we know it's possible, it's one reading a lot of the time, and he's just trying to explain how. So when he asks how is synthetic a priori knowledge possible, For example, how is mathematical knowledge possible? He clearly thinks it is possible. And the goal is just to explain how. It's not to establish that it is possible. Maybe, when you get that explanation, you also get considerations that establish that it is possible. Here, too, we might ask that same question. Is he assuming that it is possible to be justified in believing everybody ought to agree and he's just trying to explain how that's possible or is he trying to establish as well that it is possible to be justified in believing everybody ought to agree with your judgment of taste that's often something that's rather obscure here I think at the very least we can say he's trying to explain how it's possible second issue that arises from this is, so I've mentioned that provided you can be justified in knowing that your pleasure comes from the harmonious free play of your faculties, then your expectation of agreement is justified. Question arises, how can you be justified in believing that your pleasure comes from that source on any given occasion? Well, Kant is quite open about the fact that you can't be certain in any given occasion that your pleasure does come from harmonious free play. And in fact, this is similar to claims he makes in his moral philosophy about how we can never really be certain that we're acting from duty as opposed to from inclination. There he says, there might always be some secret, unacknowledged interest or inclination that is really motivating us and it's not our duty And a similar thought may perhaps be motivating him here. That unbeknownst to us, we may still be motivated by interest, or our pleasure may still arise from interest, rather than from the harmonious free play. So, now saying you can't be certain is is different from saying you can never be justified in thinking that it comes from the harmonious free play. Uh, You can consider whether there are any interests that you might have in the existence of the object of course, Uh, and if you can't think of any, then that might give you some grounds or justification, even if it's not certainty, for thinking that your pleasure comes from harmonious free play. So that concession doesn't sort of leave us in a total state of ignorance uh, or say that we're in a total state of ignorance about whether our pleasure comes from harmonious free play, but he does acknowledge that, that we can't be certain about the sources of our pleasure. Okay, so that is the deduction. I'd like to finish by discussing what he says about judgments of the sublime. So in the 18th century, uh, in addition to the beautiful, the sublime was a very important category of aesthetic property or aesthetic experience. Uh, So it sort of signified a kind of disturbing feeling or rapturous terror of the kind that you get when you enjoy the sight of storms at sea, ruined castles, volcanoes, waterfalls, hurricanes, all that stuff that the Romantics would really enjoy. A lot of theories about it in the 18th century. And Burke, uh, Edmund Burke, who's best known as uh, author of Reflections on the Revolution in France and and as a sort of intellectual ancestor to political conservatives of a certain stripe these days, uh, early in his career wrote uh, work on aesthetics about the beautiful and the sublime, which Kant read. And Burke's basic thought was that we call something sublime uh, if it causes a feeling of delight because it seems painful and dangerous, but is perceived from a safe, dis- safe distance. And Kant is going to have his own take on this category of aesthetic experience. So he thinks there's a number of similarities between judgments of taste, judgments of the sublime, uh, which I'll just go through quickly uh, to begin. So they're both based on pleasure, Not based on concepts either, Uh, and therefore they're based on pleasure connected with uh, the intuition of the object and not, uh, as I say, based on concepts. Judgments of the sublime are also singular judgments. And he thinks they also possess that key feature of universality. We think everyone ought to agree. But lastly and most importantly for his discussion, He thinks pleasure in the sublime arises from a kind of accord between imagination and a certain faculty of concepts, but not the understanding. It's a faculty he calls reason. And reason, in his vocabulary, has a certain set of concepts proper to it, which he calls ideas or rational ideas. And these are concepts of things that it would not be possible to have an intuition of. So, the concept of God is an idea. Concept of freedom. Concept of immortality. Concept of infinity. All of these are ideas. Special concepts associated with this other faculty of reason, not the faculty of understanding that helps make experience possible could never have intuitions of these things. But we have concepts of them. And they play, some of them, a certain role uh, in various parts of our thinking, according to Kant. So moral action is only possible on the assumption that we're free, to use one of the most important examples for him. But of course we have no empirical evidence of our freedom, because in the world of experience everything is governed by causal necessity. So it's an idea in that sense. So these ideas are going to be important to his explanation of his talk of the sublime. Two kinds of the sublime he talks about. First is the mathematically sublime And these are things that, as he puts it, are absolutely great. So, great without qualification. Those things in comparison with which everything else is little. And then he makes a rather surprising move. He says, nothing we ever see is, strictly speaking, sublime. Because everything we can possibly imagine or experience... Uh, we can also imagine being small in comparison with something else regarded in some other relation. However, sometimes, in experience, we perceive something that our imagination cannot hold in its entirety. So, remember I mentioned at the example of the line, you've got to hold the earlier parts in order, as you proceed to the later parts of the line, in order to represent the whole thing. Sometimes we can't do that with our imagination when we perceive something. Some things are just so big, you forget about the earlier parts you looked at as you're surveying the whole thing. That seems to be the thought. And he gives an interesting example of a travel writer who describes the pyramids. And he thinks this is the reason this guy suggests that you stand neither too close to the pyramids nor too far away to appreciate them but close enough so that as you survey them, you can't hold the whole thing in your mind. So you're near enough to it that it's just so vast that you can't get a representation of the whole thing by surveying it in your mind. That seems to be the basic thought. Now these things are not, of course, absolutely great, as he puts it, but what they do is bring to our minds the idea of infinity, of what is properly speaking sublime. And the fact that we can think of it, think of infinity, indicates to us that we have a faculty in us that is not limited to sensation. As he puts it, a faculty of mind transcending every standard of sense. Namely, reason. And that gives us pleasure. But we can only get that pleasure through a kind of displeasure at our imagination's inability to contain the whole thing. Similar strategy goes with the dynamically sublime, which I'll just go through quickly. Dynamically sublime is nature seen as something uh, mighty and fearful, but which has no dominion over us, and which we are therefore not afraid of. So once again, uh, similar to Burke, We see nature as dynamically sublime when we see something extremely powerful from a position of safety. And this, Kant thinks, brings to our mind the thought of our ability to overcome nature. Where do we have the ability to overcome nature? Well, in moral action. We can overcome our inclinations. And he doesn't, I don't think, say this explicitly, but it seems to be Invited is the thought that we can overcome the order of causal necessity because we have freedom. Or at least we must presuppose freedom in the case of moral action. And the sight of some really powerful nature over there that can't hurt us brings to mind this fact about us or this idea within us of moral agency, of overcoming nature within us and nature outside. And that, he says, is pleasurable, even though what we're looking at is fearful. That thought of our moral vocation, as he puts it, is a pleasurable experience. And that's why with the sublime you have this combination of displeasure and pleasure. Uh, And why, properly speaking, only the human mind is sublime, not nature. And it's because of this moral element that we can expect everybody to agree with judgments of the sublime. Uh, And that's because we can expect, on moral grounds, everybody to be capable of feeling uh, for the sublime because we can expect them to be capable of moral feeling. Thanks very much.